In the week leading to the crucifixion, Jesus confronted the Jewish religious leaders, condemning them and predicting the destruction of the temple. His prediction of the temple's destruction, coupled with their understanding of the prophecies regarding the end of the present age and the coming of the Messianic kingdom, caused the disciples to ask three questions in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. First they ask, when will these things happen? Their first question is for a date regarding the temple's destruction. Based upon Daniel 9, they understood that after the temple's destruction, the final seven years of God's plan for Israel would begin. Next, the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Their second question involved knowing what signs would precede Jesus' coming. They were looking for visible indicators of when Jesus would establish God's kingdom on earth. They were not looking for the rapture, but the return of Christ. At this point in biblical revelation, the rapture was still a mystery. It had not yet been revealed. Finally, the disciples ask, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, the end of the age is a common rabbinic phrase referring to this present worldly age. And they're asking, again, what is the visible indicator that is going to alert us that the present age is completed? Because they knew only when the present age is completed will the future age and the messianic kingdom be revealed. Jesus answers their questions beginning in Matthew 24 verse 4 with what we call the sermon about the end times. He warns the disciples, see to it that no one misleads you. Even today, this is a timely warning to believers. There are so many false teachers, so many false prophets, misinterpreting and misrepresenting prophetic scriptures, that so many believers today are being misled about what the Bible actually says about the end times. Now Jesus begins by telling us that the primary sign that will indicate or alert individuals that the present age is ending and that King Jesus is returning to establish his kingdom is the tribulation period. The tribulation period. In Matthew 25 verses 5 to 14, Jesus outlines for us the first three and one half years of the tribulation. During this time, there will be super, an, an, a increase, a global increase, a supernatural increase in false messiahs, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, persecution, apostasy, lawlessness, and even, praise God, evangelism. So when you look at the world today, listen, we don't hold a candle to what the first half of the tribulation is going to look like. We stated back when we were looking at that text that if the uh, rapture were to occur and the tribulation begin this year, you're looking at two billion people being wiped out by the end of the first half of the tribulation. Two billion people. Jesus refers to the events of this first half of the tribulation as the beginning of the birth pangs, the labor pains. And just as labor pains announce the impending birth of a child, so the events 
of the tribulation announced the impending birth of the Messianic age. And as well, just as labor pains increase in intensity, the closer the birth draws, so too the events of the tribulation will intensify as the birth of the Messianic age draws nearer. Halfway through the tribulation, Jesus reveals that the Antichrist will commit the abomination of desolation. In Matthew 24 and verse 15. The abomination of desolation, originally spoken of by Daniel the prophet, reveals to us that halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist will break the covenant he made with Israel. He will abolish God's law. He will forbid the celebration of God's feast. He will set his throne in the Holy of Holies. He will declare himself to be God, and he will demand to be worshipped by the people. Now, the abomination of desolation sets off the final three and one-half years of the tribulation, as Jesus explains in Matthew 24, verses 16 to 28. Jesus warns any believers living in and around Jerusalem at that time need to flee to the mountains because the Antichrist's wrath is going to be immediately directed at them. The judgments of the tribulation second half will be greater than the first half. The afflictions of the tribulation second half will be unparalleled to any other time in human history. Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew 24 that the intensity of the afflictions of the second half of the tribulation will be so great that such affliction has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Immediately after the tribulation, Jesus reveals in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 to 31, his return as king, which is the final birth pang culminating in the birth of the Messianic age. Jesus says in verse 29 that as the tribulation ends, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. And as a result, many people will die from fear, and demonic forces will tremble. With day and night sky darkened around the globe, the messianic king returns in blazing glory. Indeed, every eye will see him. And upon seeing their Messiah, many Jewish people will mourn and repent of their sin. At that moment, the king returns and dispatches his angels to gather Jewish believers, regardless of where they are located on earth. And these Jewish believers will be the first citizens welcomed into the earthly messianic kingdom. Now having answered the disciples' questions, Jesus now shifts gears in his sermon, beginning in verse 32. He has provided us a doctrinal treatise of the end time. Now Jesus gives practical application and instructions in preparation for his return. And the application and instruction portion of the sermon about the end times begins with the parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24, 32 to 35. The parable of the fig tree, Matthew 24, 32 to 35. Jesus begins this parable of the fig tree with a command in Matthew 24, 32a. A command. Chapter 24, verse 32a. Jesus says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. Notice he begins stating, now learn. That word learn, manthano, is an imperative verb denoting a responsibility that you and I have as followers of Christ to acquire knowledge, to accept it as true, and to apply it to our lives. 
Now this knowledge is not merely acquiring a bunch of facts. That's not what he's talking about. We can certainly acquire facts and repeat facts and put our facts down on a test. But biblical prophecy is not just a bunch of facts to repeat. What Jesus wants us to do is to commit ourselves to apply and practice what we have learned. Biblical prophecy is not something to simply entertain you, but it is something to change you. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle John writes, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed, that is, obey the things which are written in it. Believers, you and I need to consider whether we are prepared to change our lives by what we learn in biblical prophecy. Are you willing to learn the truths hidden in biblical prophecy? Are you willing to accept them as true? Are you willing to apply them to your lives? Now specifically, Jesus wants us to acquire, accept, and apply the lessons from the parable of the fig tree. It is as if Jesus was saying, let the fig tree become your teacher. Let the fig tree become your teacher. Now the lesson of the fig tree here is given in a parable. A parable, a parabole, is a story that draws comparison or analogy between two ideas or thoughts. We often define a parable biblically as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. When we look at parables, they have two degrees of meaning, a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. And the two parts there communicate a religious or ethical truth. The purpose of the parables of the scripture are to focus upon God, his kingdom, and his will for his people. Now when we consider the parables, and we've been through the parables of Matthew 13, one of the things we learned about parables is that they're concise, that they are drawn from ordinary life, and they engage in a lot of hyperbole. And so we laid out back in our study of Matthew 13 five guidelines for interpreting parables. And I just want to briefly rehearse those five guidelines for us as we go through the parable of the fig tree. Number one, guideline one, the words and phrases in a parable must be thoroughly analyzed. Okay? You need to take each word and phrase and analyze it. Number two, guideline two, the parable must be read from the perspective of the original writers and readers, not our perspective, not the perspective of the modern person. We do that, we're going to end up with the wrong interpretation. Number three, the parable must be interpreted in its original context. You know, I've seen a lot of interpretations about different parables, none of them correct. Why? Because they lifted them from the context. What did Jesus say before and after this parable? has a lot to do with how to interpret the parable. Number four, guideline four, the parable must conform to the teaching of the whole of Scripture. Jesus is not going to give us a parable that disagrees with the rest of the Scripture. And number five, we need to determine how the parable reveals God's kingdom, His dealings with humanity, and His expectations for His people. 
Again, we've got to see how does the parable reveal God's kingdom or his dealings with humanity or his expectations for his people. Now, when we follow those five guidelines, we're going to discover the plain sense of the parable. Now, teaching in parables was a common rabbinic method of teaching. All right, so when Jesus spoke in parables, it was nothing new for the disciples to hear parables. Uh, Parables are dark sayings. That's the literal translation of the word, a dark saying or a hidden saying. You know, sometimes we hear the word dark saying, ooh, it's something evil. No, it just means it's something hidden. Uh, Proverbs. The word proverb is the same for parable. Okay. So the book of Proverbs is what? A book of parables. Okay. Uh, Where they're taking earthly things and personifying them uh, to teach heavenly truths. When when they asked Jesus, Lord, why are you teaching in parables? He gave them two reasons. He says in Matthew 13, 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Okay? In other words, Jesus was teaching in parables to reveal hidden mysteries to the disciples, but to prohibit those who rejected him from understanding those same truths. Matthew adds another reason in Matthew 13, verse 34 to 35. He says, Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things since the foundation of the world. Now in the sermon about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus provided eight parables there. To reveal previously undisclosed truths, mysteries, about God's kingdom in the present age. Jesus again implores seven parables here in his sermon about the end times. There are seven, ser- seven parables here. Number one, verses 32 to 35, Matthew 24, 32 to 35, we have the parable of the fig tree. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 to 41, we have the parable of two men and two women. In Matthew 24, verse 43, we have the parable of the thief. In Matthew 24, 45 to 51, we have the parable of the good and evil slave. In Matthew 25, 1 to 13, we have the parable of the ten virgins. In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, we have the parable of the hidden talent. And then finally, in Matthew 25, 31 through the first verse of 26, we have the parable of the sheep and goats. Seven parables here in the sermon about the end times, that reveal application and instructions for us in light of Christ's return. So we have a command. In verses 32b to 33, Matthew 24, verses 32b through 33, Jesus continues the parable of the fig tree with a comparison. A comparison. Let's look at verse 32, part B, through verse 33. The fig tree, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now remember what I said, a parable is a comparison between two ideas, a figurative and a literal, to communicate a truth. Now we have a comparison between a fig tree as what it literally is and a figurative meaning for what it's going to teach us. Now, 
fig trees were abundant throughout Judea. They would grow 20 to 30 feet high. It's a big fig tree. They are one of the few trees in the region of Judea that lose their leaves seasonally. A lot of the other trees were evergreen type and do not lose their leaves, but fig trees would lose their leaves. And uh, there, where the Jewish people would look to the fig tree to uh, determine the season based upon when the fig trees are losing their leaves and producing new leaves. Now the new leaves on the fig tree are the first sign of the coming summer season. And fig trees, again, were so common that they were often used in Jewish poetry, Jewish teachings, Jewish prophecies, and analogies and parables. For example, in Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 13, Solomon writes to his lover, The fig tree has ripened its figs. The vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. Noting that winter has passed and that spring was blossoming as demonstrated by the blossoming fig trees, Solomon urges his lover to come and see him. In Judges 9, Gideon's son Abimelech. Remember Gideon the judge? He had a son. He had 70, over 70 sons. He had one son named Abimelech. He murdered 70 of his brothers and appointed himself the king of Shechem. Jotham, one of the brothers who escaped the massacre, climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim on the day of Abimelech's enthronement and pronounced a parable. In his parable, he refers to his father Gideon and his other brothers as an olive tree, as a fig tree, and as a vine. He notes that the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine refused to leave the place that God had appointed them. They stayed right where God wanted them. But Abimelech desired what God had not deemed to give him. And therefore Jotham referred to him as Bramble. When Nebuchadnezzar began deporting the children of Israel to Babylon, Jeremiah saw a vision. He he writes in Jeremiah 24 verses 1 and 2, Behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. One basket has very good figs like first ripe figs figs, and the other basket has very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to their rottenness. Now in the vision, he goes on to find out that the good figs typify the exiles whose hearts were right with God. The good figs would be returned to the land. The bad figs typified those whose hearts were wicked. And such ones would be scattered, destroyed by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Hosea Hosea prophesied that Ephraim, or Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, would go into captivity because of their spiritual adultery. Yahweh declares in Hosea 9.10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season, but they came to be El pure and devoted themselves to shame. They became as detestable as what they had loved. You see, initially, Israel had promise like the first fruits on the fig tree, but they fell into idolatry and became barren. Habakkuk called the Jewish people living in Babylon, or in the Babylonian captivity, not to lose hope, but to continue trusting in God. 
He wrote in Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like kind's feet, and makes me walk on high places. What is Habakkuk telling us? Don't lose hope. Even though it appears everything around you, the bottom has fallen out, don't lose hope. God is still your strength. Joel used the illustration of the fig to describe the devastation of Judah by a plague of locusts. He says in Joel 1.7, It has made my wine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Jesus also used the fig illustration in a number of his teachings. In Matthew 7.16, he said, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Jesus' point was, just as thistles do not produce figs, so false teachers do not produce good fruit. On his way to Jerusalem with the disciples, Jesus saw another fig tree with leaves but no fruit. Matthew 21.19 records seeing a lone fig tree by the road. He came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Now you need to understand what's the problem here is that fig trees bear fruit when they bear their leaves. So if you're seeing leaves, you should be seeing fruit. Finding no fruit, Jesus curses the tree. And it withers. The barrenness of the fig tree and the subsequent curse symbolized Israel's spiritual fruitlessness and demonstrated their re- by their rejection of the Messiah and the divine judgment that followed. Now in Matthew 24 and verse 32, Jesus again uses a fig tree in his parable. He says, The fig tree, when its branches has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Notice here that Jesus focuses just on one singular branch. He draws the disciples in for a closer inspection of that branch. Again, my friends, The fig tree is to be our teacher. And we are to closely study that branch as a good student. The branch is tender. It's habalas. means that new growth, new leaf growth is beginning to appear, which happens each spring. This new growth begins when the sap flows from after winter. And as the sap flows, fruit and leaves appear on the branch. The blossoming of the fig tree occurs in the springtime and is a sign that summertime is near when the figs will be harvested. As I think about harvest throughout Matthew's gospel, harvest is a time, is a picture of judgment. When God separates believers from unbelievers and judges them accordingly. John the baptizer prophesied in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12 that when the Messiah comes, he will come with a winnowing fork in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into his barns, but he'll burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. In the wheat and weeds parable in Matthew 13, 20, Jesus said, Allow both the wheat and the weeds to grow together until the harvest. And in that time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barns. You see, at the end of this present age, 
which concludes with the seven-year tribulation. So at the end of the tribulation, Jesus sends forth his reapers, his angels, to gather the wheat, the believers, into his barns, or God's kingdom. And at the same time, they gather up the tares, the weeds, the unbelievers, to burn them up or to cast them into hell. In Jesus' current parable of the fig tree, the fig tree teaches us a future event. He says, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Since the context beginning in verse 4 is future, the you here refers to the believers living in the tribulation. He uses the second person pronoun just like the biblical prophets to refer to people living in a future time. For example, in Isaiah 33 verse 17, the prophet says, Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Now Isaiah wrote to the Jewish people of his day, but he wasn't referring to them seeing the Messiah the king. He was referring to that future generation who would see Messiah the king. Now notice he says when you see what? All these things. What are all these things? All these things is exactly what Jesus has just been talking about. What? The tribulation. The darkening of the sun, the moon, and the stars. The return of the king. When you see all of those things... Then you know the one who is near right at the door. Who's that? It's Jesus. James chapter 5 and verse 19 declares, Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now here's what's interesting. In Matthew 24 verse 33, the verse we're in, and in James 5 19, the word door, Torah, can be rendered as gate. Now that's significant. Because in the ancient Near East, the elders of the city would sit at the gates of the city to render judgment. So that Jesus says at the door or at the gate implies what? That he has come to judge. My friends, when you see the tribulation and you see the return of Christ, know this. Jesus has come to judge. He is going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. He is going to usher the righteous into his kingdom. He's going to cast the unrighteous into hell. And just as leaves on the fig tree tell us that summer is near, so the tribulation signifies that Jesus' return as judge is near. Verse 34. Jesus continues the parable of the fig tree with a confirmation. In Matthew 24, verse 34, a confirmation. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Truly I say to you. That word truly is the word amen. Our English word amen is actually a transliteration of the Greek and the Hebrew term. Both of them spelled the same way. Amen. In the law, amen was placed at the end of a statement to underscore its reliability or truthfulness. For example, in Deuteronomy 27.15, Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say what? Amen. In other words, yes, that is true. That's a reliable statement. Literally, Jesus is saying here, You may not think I really meant what I just said, but I do. What I said is reliable. What I've said is true. And when he says, I say to you, that conveys that he is speaking with authority. He's not getting this from anybody else. He is speaking. 
He continues, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is probably one of the most misinterpreted verses in the book of Matthew. Who is this generation? The word generation, genea, refers to a group of people living at a particular time. A group of people living in a particular time. Quoting Psalm 95 and verse 10, Paul says in Hebrews 3 verse 10, Therefore I was angry with what? Or with who? This generation. Now when I look at Psalm 95 verse 10, who is this generation? It was the generation living in the wilderness during the time of Exodus. That's who he was angry with. In Luke 7 and verse 31, Jesus asked, What then shall I compare the men of this generation? Now there, in Luke 7 31, this generation that Jesus was referring to was the current religious leaders rejecting Jesus. What was he going to do with them? Now, in Matthew 24, verse 34, to whom is Jesus referring to as this generation? It cannot refer to the disciples of Jesus' day, as some imply. The only way this generation could refer to the disciples of Jesus' day is if the events of Matthew 24 do not refer to the tribulation. You see, there are some who say that, well, this generation refers to Jesus' disciples, therefore, Matthew 24 is a prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction in A.D. 70. Now, that might sound plausible, until you consider that in A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, there were no famines, there were no earthquakes, there were no false messiahs, no false prophets, no abomination of desolation, no darkening of the sun and the moon, no falling of the stars from sky, and no return of Jesus. Therefore, the events of Matthew 24 cannot refer to A.D. 70. They must refer to the tribulation, a still future event. Therefore, this generation cannot refer to Jesus' disciples in that moment. Some have purported that this generation refers to the Jewish people in general. This is probably a little more plausible. Notice the statement, this generation will not pass away. Or pass away there uh, means to be done, to be obliterated. Okay? To go off the scene. They claim that this is a promise that the Jewish people will continue to exist until Jesus returns. Indeed, my friends, the Jewish people will continue until Jesus returns. Yahweh declared in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37, the perpetuity, excuse me, the perpetuity of the Jewish people. He says, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so its waves war the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Okay. Now Jesus, or God certainly promised the perpetuity of the Jewish people. Okay, we cannot number all the stars of the sky. We can't measure the universe. Why? Because the, me- the universe is always expanding. Okay, it's immeasurable. Uh, we haven't been able to search out the depths of the sea. He says, listen, if you, could, if you could make the sun stop shining, the moon stop giving light, measure the number of stars, measure the length of the universe, search out the depths of the earth, then you could possibly bring an end to the Jewish people. That's never going to happen. 
But the idea that this generation here in Matthew 24 refers to the perpetuity of the Jewish people doesn't fit the context. If Jesus was declaring the perpetuity of the Jewish people, he would have directly referred to them as what? God's people or the offspring of Israel. He would have stayed consistent with the Hebrew scriptures. This parable of the fig tree has been so misunderstood and misconstrued that some have purported that this parable predicts Israel becoming a political state in 1948. Friends, this parable does not predict Israel becoming a state in 1948. Okay? They take the statement, this generation... And purport that Israel's statehood points to Christ's return being near. Okay? The idea is that the 1948 generation who were part of Israel becoming a nation once again would see Christ's return. Okay? Now here's why I say we have to be very careful about reading modern news into biblical prophecies. Okay? A generation in the Bible is a 40-year period. A 40-year period. Another generation surpassed the 1948 generation in 1988. Additionally, since 1988, some 25 plus years have passed. And Jesus has not returned. So yes, while it sounded good and it sounded biblical, the reality was Israel becoming a nation in 1948 did not fulfill the fig tree parable. Okay. Now I'm not saying it wasn't part of God's plan. Indeed it is part of God's plan. It involves God's people. But this generation is not the generation that returned to Israel in 1948. They have been passed over once and they're soon to be passed over a second time. The same group who thinks that the parable is foretelling Israel's 1948 return also claims that the budding of the leaves on the fig tree represents a spiritual revival amongst the Israelites when they become a state. Now, you know, friends, listen, I, I will be the first to tell you, yes, uh, God is still calling Jewish people to salvation. Okay? But we need to understand that the Jewish state is one of the most secular states in the world. That has nothing to do with Jesus the Messiah. Okay? There has not been a spiritual revival in the nation of Israel. Are there Jewish people being saved? Yes. But I wouldn't say that there is a spiritual revival associated with statehood. You see, to interpret this parable as teaching Israeli statehood rejects the understanding of the original readers and writers who interpreted the text according to the time and place it was given. Will there be a spiritual revival of Israel? Yes. When? In the tribulation. In the tribulation. That's when the spiritual revival. So if this generation has anything to do with a spiritual revival of Israel, this generation must be woohoo! The generation living when? In the tribulation. 
That is who this generation is. The generation, the people group living in the tribulation. Listen, from verse 4 through verse 28, Jesus has referred to the people living in the tribulation as you. The prophetic you. In verse 33, he says, when you, the prophetic you, see all these things, you living in the tribulation, see the tribulation, see the return of Christ. You who see all these things is this generation. Those living in the tribulation. In other words, my friends, those who experience the birth pangs will experience the birth of the messianic age. Now verse 35. Jesus concludes the parable of the fig tree with a commitment. A commitment. In verse 35, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. That word pass away, perokamai, means to go out of existence. Just like that generation wouldn't pass away, heaven and earth will pass away. Now, Jesus specifically refers here to the prophecy of the renewed heaven and earth, first pronounced in Isaiah 65, 17. Yahweh said, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. What Jesus does in this parable is jump forward a thousand years in time to an event that occurs after his return. So we have the rapture of the church happening at some point in the future. Immediately after that, we have the last seven years of the present age, the tribulation. At the end of that seven years, Jesus returns and establishes his millennial reign, his thousand year reign here on earth. At the end of that thousand years, there are several events one of those events is heaven and earth passing away so that he creates a new or a renewed heaven and earth. Peter writes of this in 2 Peter 3.10. He says, The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Notice Peter says there, they will pass away. Same term, parokomai, that Jesus uses here. The heavens are going to cease to exist with a roar. That word ruizadon means the crackling of a fire. With the crackling of fire, the heavens will pass away. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The word elements, stoikion, is the rudimentary parts of the material world. The Greeks referred to the stoikion as earth, air, fire, and water. The basic building blocks of the universe are going to be dissolved, lose cohesion, break apart. They're going to be destroyed. Luo. And this will incur with what? Intense heat. A scorching fire. Finally, the earth and its works will be burned up. Harusko. They'll be, is interesting, because the word translated here, burned up, uh, has a dual meaning. Yes, you can burn something up, but it also implies a burning for the, for the point of judgment. Burning for the point of judgment. You know, in the same way, you know, how do, how do you determine if it's pure gold? You have to put it through the fire. Pure soil, you put it through the fire. You judge it that way. Uh, literally, we could render it this way. The earth and its works will be judged. Clement of Rome, who lived from AD 35 to 99, a contemporary of Paul and Peter and John, he quoted 2 Peter 3.10 and says this, Know that the day of judgment is coming as a burning oven. Okay? He calls the day of judgment a burning oven. The heavens will melt and the earth shall be as lead melting on the fire. Then the hidden and open works of men will be judged. 
Peter continues in 2 Peter 3, 12. He says the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. So he restates what he said in verse 10. But notice he goes on and says, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, the present heaven and earth are going to be dissolved in a fiery furnace and cease to exist a thousand years after Christ returns. But Peter doesn't stop there with the destruction. If he did, we'd be hopeless. But instead, he gives us hope. Because there is a future. We have something to live for more than the moment. And that hope is residing in the new heavens and new earth. According to Peter, God has promised new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's quoting Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. The word new is interesting. The word new here, kainos, is a renewal. A renewing of the heavens and earth. It's a comparative term. If he had used the Greek term nuos, it would mean something non-existent has come into existence. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Why, what, what's the big deal about these two different Greek terms? Okay, If Peter used nuos, it would be a creation of a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. But Peter used kainos, meaning that the old heavens and earth aren't annihilated. They're not gone. They're renewed. Yes, they're going to be burned with fire, but they're going to come forth renewed. The old commentator Henry Alfred said this, The flood did not annihilate the earth, but changed it. And as the new earth was the consequence of the flood, so the final new heavens and earth shall be a fire. So this fiery judgment that's going to go forth throughout the heavens and the earth is going to bring forth a renewed heavens and earth where righteousness will dwell. Isaiah 32, 16, righteous, the justice will, excuse me, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, righteous will abide in the fertile field. Who is going to take up permanent residence in this new heaven and earth? The righteous one. Jesus Christ, God himself. And those who reside with him, all believers, will be characterized by righteousness. Now, though the present heaven and earth is going to pass away, Jesus affirms my word will not pass away. My word will not go out of existence. In other words, His word, indeed all of Scripture, will never cease to exist, but continue to be relevant, to continue to be in force, even when the present heaven and earth have been destroyed. Indeed, as Isaiah 40 verse 8 declares, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Everything Jesus has said, including the tribulation and His return to judge, will come to pass just as he said. Friends, the parable of the fig tree confirms the tribulation is the sign of Jesus' return as king to judge the world. The parable confirms a few other lessons for us to learn. Number one, let's learn that God is in absolute control of history. Second, God has a definite unchanging plan for humanity. God has a definite unchanging plan for humanity. Third, God's word is eternal and immutable. Now knowing God's plan for the future believer, how does that plan impact your life? Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are destroyed this way, what sort of people ought you to be? How ought you to live in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God? 
God's absolute control of history, His unchanging plan for humanity, His eternal immutable Word, ought to cause you and I, believer, to live holy and godly as the end of the present age approaches. Is that how we're living? Are you living holy? Are you living godly? The fig tree has not yet blossomed, but it will. And when it does, Jesus comes as judge. Friends, when he comes at the rapture, Jesus is going to judge our works. He's going to question each believer about their works. And the question that we must ask, is he going to judge my work as holy and godly? Or is he going to judge my work as unholy and ungodly? Consider how you live in holiness and godliness as that day approaches. Let's learn the lesson of the fig tree. And my friends, let's live and grow in holiness and godliness. Father God in heaven, as we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, we give you the praise that you are the God of eternity, the God whose word does not change, it does not falter, it does not cease. You are the God who has created a plan that will happen, that will occur just as you have decreed it. You are working your plan amongst humanity even now. Father, there is nothing that's going to occur this year or any year to come that you don't already know of. And Lord, that should be a comfort for us. We already know the score. We know the end. We know the result. We know where it's headed. We've no need to fear. We just need to sit back and watch and wait for the rapture. Father, I pray as that day approaches, as the end of the present age draw near, as you come and you send your son to return as a king and judge, that Father, your children, you and us here, that Father, we would be looking at ourselves and asking whether we are growing in holiness and godliness. Or do our works promote holiness and godliness? And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to examine ourselves. Father, if we find any work in our life that isn't holy, that isn't godly, Father, may we confess that. May we, may we forsake it. May we repent of it, Father. And turn a new leaf. And produce new fruit. Good fruit. Not bad. Father, I pray that as we produce good fruit, as we grow in holiness, as we grow in godliness, that you would get the praise from our lives each and every day until your Son comes again. Amen.